Well, I want to welcome y'all to another Daily Decade on this Ember Friday as we uh, begin the short time that closes out Advent and brings us into, into Christmas. By the time you hear this, I'll probably have already posted the first uh, episode that was supposed to be posted yesterday and ended up uh, going on the anchor uh, today. But I wanted to put forth a, a Friday episode anyway, because this will be the one that gets uploaded on the uh, Exodus Americanus and anywhere else where we end up being syndicated. That'll be the, the schedule. It'll be the Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. So that'll be coming along. The website is coming along as well, and we'll have that up and running soon. Uh, and uh, I've, we, of course, have the email address, which I encourage you to send your intentions into. That's requests at protonmail.com. Decade, D-E-C-A-D-E. Requests in the plural at protonmail.com. Uh, I don't have any intentions waiting for me there today, but I encourage you to send them in nevertheless. Our intention for today, it being Ember Friday in the Ember Week of Advent, is for the growth of sound vocations, uh, so the both the growth of vocations, but also uh, good seminary training for the priests that are coming in, a vocation which uh, a young man who uh, hears the call to the priesthood and then finds himself misled by a uh, mendacious shepherd who is really a wolf in disguise is uh, no more use to us than had he never entered the priesthood at all. In fact, in, in many cases, he'd be far worse off than if he had never entered the priesthood at all. And so we pray not only for the growth of vocations, which is one of the things that is constantly harped upon, especially in the Novus Ordo, but the growth of vocations and their good training, sound training, in the theology of the church, the catechesis of the church, so that they themselves can become sound and good shepherds for those of us who, in this time of confusion, sometimes feel very much like lost sheep. And to that end, I think the most appropriate person to invoke would be St. Gregory the Great. Uh, so that's who we'll pray to today. In nomine Patris, Fidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, quies in celis, Sancti Viceter Nomen Tuum, Adveniat Regnum Tuum. Fiat voluntas Tua, sicut in celo et in terra. Panem Nostrum quotidianam da nobis hodie, et dimidi nobis debita Nostra, sicut et nos diminimus debitoribus Nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nosam alo. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, Ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. 
Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, Ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et ora mortis nostre. Amen. Gloria Patria, Fidio et Spiritui Sancto, sicurerat principio et nunc et semper et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordia, vita dulcedo et spes nostre, salve. A te clamamus exulis filia evi, a te suspiramus gementes et flentes, in hac lac Romanum vale. Ea ergo, advocata nostra, ilos tuos misericordes oculos ad nos converte, et Jesum beatum fructum ventris tui, nobis postoc exilium ostende, o clemens, o pia, o dulci virgo Maria. Ora pro nobis, sancta Dei genetrix, ut dignis officiamor promissionibus Christi, Ramos. Pour forth we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ, thy Son, was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. For the growth and good training of vocations, St. Gregory, who gave us the priesthood in its form that we know and which has carried the church forth these past centuries. St. Gregory the Great, pray for us. For all of us in battles, priest and laity alike, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In nomine Pachis, Infidiate, Spiritus Sancti. Amen.
St. Gregory the Great is largely responsible for the priesthood that we have. That is true. The Western priesthood is set apart from the Eastern priesthoods in a number of ways. Now, in terms of belief, uh, the Byzantine and Maronite and Melkite, uh, all of the various Eastern rites of the Catholic Church all hold the same theology about the uh, sacerdotal qualities of a priest. But what differs among them is that while in the East you have priests that are not uh, bound by any monastic rule, in the West all of our priests, even the secular ones, even the, the parish clergy, your diocesan clergy, are all monastics. Now, that may come as a little bit of a surprise. Most people don't think about it, but it's true. They're all monastics. Because all of them take mona basic monastic vows. Even though they don't join an order and they're subject directly to the Pope, they all take basic monastic vows. According to the ancient canons of the Eastern Church, and this is found in Scripture, a priest may be the husband of only one wife. That means that historically, even in the West, there were married priests. Uh, in fact, this got a little bit out of hand in the Celtic Church. You have to go. You go into Ireland, where things are sort of cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, you would have a, a husband, husband-wife pair running a parish, uh, or in some cases, actually running an abbey, where you would have the. Um, husband and wife uh, would enter a, a celibate relationship, but they remain husband and wife. She would become an abbess, he would become the abbot, and they would run the abbey together. And it was, uh, it was uh, what do you call it, mixed, uh, mixed sex uh, abbey, where you'd have both monks and nuns living there together, each of them under the authority of the abbess and the abbot. That was not unheard of. And it took a great deal of reorganization in order to get that straightened out. But uh, needless to say, for a very long time in the church, it was very common for a priest, an ordinary secular priest, to be married and not particularly bound by any uh, real vows of, uh, that we often think of as being priestly vows, but in fact in the early days were monastic, which is poverty, chastity, and obedience. And now all priests obviously are obedient to their superiors. Uh, but they need not be celibate in the East as they are in the West. And the reason for this is because of Gregory the Great, who was so heavily influenced by the monastic life and by the virtues that it contained that he determined that all of the priests should be subject to this monastic rule in order to avoid a number of troubles that arose from a priest being a father of both his flock as well as his own children. There are arguments, worldly arguments, that are put forward, of course, for both sides of this particular debate over what a, how, a priest, how well a priest can do his job if he's both a father, a husband, uh, as well as a priest. 
and Gregory sort of cut through all of that. He just uh, he determined that the service to God and the unique character that is imparted to the priest is such that uh, it is appropriate and expedient that a priest should be bound by basic monastic rules that he might serve as uh, an exemplar to those around him who are lay in their uh, state in relationship to the church. And so we owe the Western priesthood almost entirely to Gregory the Great. Now the professionalism of the Western priesthood, how well trained they are, the seminaries, all of that can be traced back to the Council of Trent, but the idea of a priesthood set apart in the way that the Latin Catholic priesthood has been set apart is really the creation of Gregory the Great. So I would encourage all priests, uh, all seminarians, and anyone who listens to this, if you ever offer prayer for vocation, it seems to me that it is most appropriate to invoke this great father of the church. That's all I'm going to say about St. Gregory. The topic that I had on my mind today actually was about fathers of the church in general. I came across uh, one of those patristic quotes again. I see these floating around every once in a while, and they're usually taken out of context, and I had another one sent to me, uh, which was a quote by uh, St. John Chrysostom. And uh, St. Chrysostom says, uh, when you are weary of uh, praying and not receiving, uh, think of the beggar uh, whom you have not heard or who you have walked away from, depending on the translation. This is, that's the quote that is usually circulated. Uh, it's taken out of the 11th homily on 1 Thessalonians which would have been composed, uh, or really it would have been given uh, sometime in the middle of St. Chrysostom's career. And on the, uh, in this homily, he has a, a slightly longer passage where he talks about the reaction that people have to God in their lives and the role that he plays and specifically the discontentedness that people feel towards God when things don't go there quite their way, because they're too worldly in their concerns. And so the full quote is, when you, and when you are weary of praying and not receiving, reflect upon the poor man who has called after you and you have not heard him. He has not borne you any anger at your not hearing. The illustration being that when we pray to God and God does not hear us, God has many God has much better reasons to not hear us than we have to not hear those who call after us for help. Our reasoning when not hearing a beggar is usually worldly. Sometimes it may be good if the beggar looks like he would not actually benefit from uh, our uh, more simple charity, or if he looks like he would be dangerous to those around us, and there are plenty of those. After all, the majority of beggars these days are 
really should be in mental institutions, but of course all those have gone, so we have nowhere to put these people. And many of them are a threat to themselves and to others. And the most charitable thing that we can do is to take care of those that we care about and to avoid the danger that some of these people pose. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be charitable. Walk by someone who's not not presenting any any harm or to himself or others, and he needs... It's, it's clear that he's asking for help. You don't know whether he needs it or not. And you don't know how he's going to use the money that you give to him. Well, it falls upon you to be charitable and to give. And, and by charitable, we mean not in giving, but having the love of God to look upon someone and give them the benefit of the doubt. Because when we're called before the throne, we shall be asked how often we gave the benefit of the doubt. And when the beggar is called before the throne, he will be asked how often he wasted the money. He will answer for his sins. We will not. That's something that's important to bear in mind. But that's, that's a, let's put that aside. That's not the central concern here. The material point is that St. John Chrysostom is pointing out to us that we get angry with God when he has very, very good divine reasons for not answering our prayers, because all of God's reasons are perfect. But the beggar, who receives nothing from us, bears us no ill will. A, a proper beggar, and especially in those days, a proper beggar was very much aware of his own situation and the dependency that he felt on those around him. Now, you may have a resentful beggar, that's a thing that does occur, but here John Chrysostom is pointing out that where the beggar has legitimate reason to be angry with us, because our reasons for not helping him are probably more imperfect, even than we give ourselves credit for, uh, the beggar is often not angry with us. And so, why would we be angry with God? The whole point of it is not your charity. The point of it is how you, how you behave towards God. There's two different things going on here. If you clip out that last bit, and if you don't read the passage in the context in which it was originally written, you lose that, and it becomes this sort of petty moralizing about how we have to give to the poor. And we hear that constantly. It's, uh, it's become the primary focus. Ever since we decided that the government had to support the poor, for some reason, from the pulpits, we've heard absolutely nothing uh, but uh, how horrible we are in our uh, stinginess. There's a focus on the world, you see. It's not, it's, it's not a matter necessarily of not being charitable, that we shouldn't be concerned about the poor. We should obviously be incredibly concerned about those that are less well off than we are. But there's a worldliness about it. You give for the sake of giving and not for the sake of God. The word charity now has almost an entirely secular meaning. The reason why we call it charity, that's metaphorical. To give to charity. To, have, to, to give in charity. To be charitable. When we say that it's an act of charity, it means it's an act of the love of God. That's what caritas is. It's the love of God, the perfect love of God, with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strength. 
And if we have that sort of love for God, then inevitably we will manifest that love in our almsgiving. That's the proper term for what you're doing is almsgiving, not charity. Charity is, as I said, metaphorical or anagological. That's a $5.10 word. At any, at any rate, when we talk about charity, that's what we're talking about. And when St. John is talking about the giving to the poor, he's using the beggar to illustrate us. We are the beggar. We are not the one who gives to the beggar. We are the beggar. And that's the important, that's the material point that's sometimes lost when you have it clipped down. Now, I don't mean to pick on this particular passage. It's just one that stood out to me and one that I have been thinking about a great deal. There are many, many passages just like that that are clipped out. And in fact, there are entire books that, are, that this is done with. There's uh, a this pamphlet put out by St. Vladimir's Press, their patristic series, which is usually quite good. Generally, they are all very, very good, and I think you should read them. But there's one, which is uh, St. Basil, or St. Basil, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I prefer to call the herb basil and the saint basil because then i'm able to separate the two out but there's a uh, a saint basil uh, and he has several writings that have been compiled together by an editorial board and turned into a book that is called saint basil on social justice now the very idea of putting these together under the title Social Justice, which is... Now, don't forget, this is an Orthodox body that's doing this. Social Justice is a concept completely foreign to Orthodoxy in to the Orthodox Church. It's The, the content of the doctrine is, is not, perhaps, but the, the term and what it has come to represent certainly is. It's almost entirely a Catholic convention. Social Justice grows out of the Papal Encyclical Rerum Novarum, and the other one, Quadragesimo Anno. That's where social justice comes from. And the term social justice itself was popularized in the English-speaking world by none other than Father Charles Coughlin. I always want to say Coughlin's Coughlin. Out of the uh, Shrine of the Little Flower. We, are, we should be familiar with Father Coughlin. If you're not, I encourage you to get yourself familiar with him. He has a lot of quite good stuff out there. Uh, some of it's a little bombastic, but... No one's perfect. And he does get more political than he ought to have as a priest. Once again, no one's perfect. But he did blaze many trails, and his publication, Social Justice, is excellent. It at least gives us something to work from for a more perfect understanding of the doctrine of social justice that's put forward in Rerum Novarum and Quadragesimo Anno. But this concept, as it currently exists, everyone who has heard this term within the last 10 years knows that it has absolutely nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with the satanic antichrist order that is busy setting itself up around us. When you have an academic institution that puts out a text with that term in it, you have to wonder because you cannot say for certain what they mean by that term. And so even when you're looking at these sort of compendiums, these collections of the, of the patristic uh, works of the fathers of the church, you have to be careful. And that's really the reflection that I wanted to uh, 
get to today, and I know I've been rather long-winded in getting there, but the point of all of this is that it is very, very important, in my opinion, that we should never content ourselves with newspaper clippings of the great saints of the church. Quotations are nice, and they're particularly good when we want to share a certain idea or illustrate a certain idea. There's always the temptation, of course, of proof texting, and which is a, a fault when we cite the fathers in that way. But if we want to achieve anything like a real spiritual awareness from the study of the fathers, then what we must do is actually read the fathers. Now, I've talked recently about the praise that a heap upon uh, tradesmen and workers, and that is not mitigated in any way by what I'm saying now it's about scholarship. Uh, a tradesman does draw closer to God with his hands, but a scholar might also draw close to God with his mind if he uses it properly. Many of the greatest saints were also scholars. And the, con the uh, mastery of mental prayer, St. Alphonsus tells us, uh, is a... Uh, um, what's the word? Uh, sine qua non of sainthood. No great saint became a saint without the mastery of mental prayer. That's what St. Alphonsus Liguri tells us. And he's a saint and a doctor of the church. So there is a mental capacity that is to be tapped into and used if we want to become saints, and that should be our goal, all of us. Should we content ourselves, therefore, with the half measures of merely memorizing quotations and citations to uh, pepper conversation with or maybe to store away as a sort of cheap illustration, a sort of uh, reduction uh, to platitudes of the truths that are articulated by this, the great saints. No, 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 that's not enough. That's ne that'll never be enough. It's lazy, first of all, and it obscures the meaning of the fathers. Now, should we read the fathers completely unsupervised? You shouldn't do that either. You shouldn't read anything completely unsupervised. It's that that much is uh, that, that that's a a temptation, but it's a dangerous one. All scholars, everyone, should have some kind of obedience. Even Saint Thomas Aquinas had obediences. But when we encounter the writings of the fathers in brief, they should inspire us a desire to know what that father had to say in its entirety, or what that doctor of the church had to say, or what any saint had to say in entirety. We should be driven to source every quotation that we encounter to ensure that what we are reading is in fact reflective of what the saint said. There are a number of quotations that are ascribed to saints that uh, <laughs> don't belong to them at all. One of the most, fa two of the most famous prayers that are said, especially in the modern world in the Novus Ordo Church, the prayer of Saint Ignatius of Loyola, uh, the, the "Let me not count the cost" one, and the prayer of Saint Francis, "Make me an instrument of your peace." 
neither of those prayers were composed by those saints. In fact, the, the, the prayer of St. Ignatius can be sourced to a Jesuit publication in the late 19th century. I might, it might even be the early 20th century in America. The prayer of St. Francis, no one knows where that came from, but it wasn't popularized until the 19, uh, uh, 1930s or 40s. And one wonders why they're so popular with the modern preachers and prelates of the 1960s and 1970s. It should make one scratch one's head. If we looked into them and sourced them properly, and unfortunately because we have so little authority that we can trust, we have to source them properly, we'll find, I think in most cases, that the actual saints have much better lessons to teach us than we are led to believe. St. Ignatius, for example, did not write about let me not count count the cost. Rather, he was very concerned with the health and well-being and safety of all of his missionaries, that they should get themselves adequate rest, that they they should not push themselves to their limits, they should not self-flagellate, anything like that. He was very reasonable. And this is the man, the only man in Spain, who spotted Sister Magdalena of the Cross, Magdalena de la Cruz, who was a demoniac and in her day was regarded as a great saint and mystic before it was revealed that she was a demoniac. And the only man in Spain of any standing who looked at her situation and said, no, this stinks to high heaven, I don't believe her, was St. Ignatius of Loyola. And now, Magdalena, Sister Magdalena de la Cruz was very concerned with self-punishment, self-flagellation, pushing the body to its utter limits and breaking it down in a uh, in uh, in extreme asceticism. Of course, she also suspended all the fasting rules and all the traditional forms of asceticism in her convent. But this pushing the, this killing yourself for the missions is uh, it's diabolical. It's common, but it's diabolical. And St. Ignatius recognized that. And so you have a prayer circulating in his name that teaches precisely the opposite theology that he himself taught while he was alive. That's the danger of not sourcing what you're hearing. And the same thing goes for St. Francis. Make me an instrument of your peace. St. Francis, more than anyone, was deeply invested in driving evil out of the church in accepting all of the pain and agony and anguish that sin causes in the world and taking it upon himself to imitate Christ in this extreme way. And he condemned those who taught to say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's from Jeremiah's, prophet Jeremiah's. And Christ himself said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, blessed are the peacemakers, what does that mean? Well, there's a, that's a completely different thing. One who exudes peace from himself is different than one who goes about negotiating peace deals. No one is 
that's a they're fundamentally different. More, there there could be an entire talk on that alone, and I won't get into it. But suffice to say, they're completely different. And so all of us should pray, as I will pray today, that we not be led astray by these newspaper clippings of saints, but that we should always carry with us the openness of the Holy Ghost to guide our, our minds and seek out truth. And so my prayer today is that we will always find truth and that we will always be guided by the true intentions and by the true spirit of the saints and that we will not be misled by those who either out of malfeasance or ignorance present us with half-truths with poor clippings and that we will always draw nearer to God following the true example of those who either through their own faith or through God's intervention have come to us to be our guides in holiness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.